The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, uh, let me encourage you to take your Bible and open with me to the book of Colossians. Uh, we continue in our exposition of the book of Colossians today, now in uh, chapter 3, looking at verses 12 through 17. Uh, it's, it's been a very busy week, but we, we still continue in our in our studies in the book of Colossians, wanting to, to know more about what the Apostle Paul is saying to us about the new life we have in Christ. So if you haven't already, grab your Bible and open with me there to Colossians chapter 3. And uh, just to give you some context and make sure that we're all up to speed, uh, what uh, the Apostle Paul has been doing in the book of Colossians, at least since the end of chapter 2, is that he has been explaining the practical implications of the Christian life. Uh, he has told you, told us, that the Christian believer is someone that has died with Christ. And their old self has died. And they have been raised to new life in Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord. They have new life in Him. And the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Colossae to explain to them, to illustrate to them, to help them understand what that new life in Christ looks like. Last week we saw... Uh, what that new life in Christ is not supposed to look like. Remember, Paul was saying last week that there are certain things that you and I should be putting off. We should be laying them aside. We should be putting them to death. Now that the old you is dead, those old patterns of life need to die as well. They are dead and buried. We need to put them off. Now this week, the Apostle Paul is going to say, here are the positive implications of being united to Christ, dying with Christ, and rising with Christ. Here Paul is saying, since you have been raised with Christ, since you have been raised to new life, since your life is now clothed in righteousness, here's what the Christian life looks like in reality, in practice, in the everyday actions of your life. Here's what it looks like to be raised to new life in the Savior. So to give you something to look out for as we make our way through the text, to give you something of an advanced outline before we pray and read the text, here's what the Apostle Paul is going to say. He's going to say, first of all, how we get to the heart of the Christian believer, how all of this works this new life in Christ. He's going to get to the heart of the believer. Not just the outside, not just external behaviors, but get to the very core, the very heart of the believer. And then he's going to get to the heart of the church and explain how this new life is lived out in community. He's going to get to the heart of the believer. And then he's going to get to the heart of the church. And then he's going to get to the heart of the gospel and explain how this new life in Christ that he gets to the heart, that's lived out in the context of Christian community, the church, is grounded in the gospel. He's always going to get to the heart of the believer, get to the heart of the church, and get to the heart of the gospel as he says, here's what this life looks like as it's lived out in you, among you, and through the power of the gospel. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the word, and we'll hear it together. Gracious God, we pause now to bow with your word open before us, uh, to pray for your blessing, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us, that he who lives within us might also illuminate our minds so that we might not only read, but gain understanding. And that understanding would lead to new obedience, grounded in new affections, longing for a transformed life. Lord, there's not a single one of us here today that should stay as we are after hearing your word. 
So work powerfully upon us and within us and among us, we pray now in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear God's Word, Colossians 3 at verse 12. He'll be reading through verse 15. This is the Word of God. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. Do keep your Bible open, and we will unpack this text together. Uh, thinking about VBS a lot this week, uh, one of the great mysteries of Vacation Bible School is the lost and found pile, which has now made its way to the entrance of the church. So as you go out, check it to see if you see anything that's familiar. But it's always amazing the things that get left behind. Items of clothing that were worn when the kids come into camp and mysteriously come off and don't get put back on and they leave and they leave it at camp and now here it is in a pile. Well, uh, putting on clothes, taking off these things. This is the metaphor that the Apostle Paul is using to describe your new life in Christ. There are things that you need to take off. The clothes of your old life that you need to put away. And there is the clothing of new life in Jesus Christ that you need to put on. But the Apostle Paul doesn't use that metaphor in such a way to say, put on the new life in Christ and then later take it off if you want to. But he is saying, dress yourself in righteousness as in Jesus Christ. But realize that as you change clothes and as you put on the clothes of righteousness and as you are united to new life in Christ, now that you're wearing it, it doesn't just become the externals of who you are, but it clothes you down to your very core, down to your soul. It becomes who you are. Now that you're wearing it, it's all that you'll ever wear again. The clothing of righteousness in Jesus Christ has become your very nature. Paul says, put off the old and put on the new. And as he does that, he is now in this context explaining, you see there in verse 12, what it looks like to put on the new life in Christ. And as he explains what it looks like to put that life on, he explains it in the context of how the new life in Christ affects you down to your very core, down to your heart, down to your soul, to transform your very inner nature, not just the externals, but your very core. He gets to the heart of the believer, and then he gets to the heart of the church, where that life of transformation is lived out in community together, and then he gets to the heart of the gospel where he says, here's the strength to make it all happen. So this new life in Christ, we put it on. What does it look like? Well, here he first is going to get to the heart of the believer. 
look back beyond our text and look back to verse 10 in chapter 3 and see how Paul says that we have put on the new self. Colossians 3 verse 10. You put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul says since that's true, since you trust in Christ, since you are united to Christ and have new life in Him, you need to start dressing the part. You need to start looking like who you are. The outside needs to match the inside. And how does that happen? He's going to spell that out here about how the ways our new life in Christ should show up and see it there again in verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. So I want you to notice about that list that what Paul is describing there is that he is not just describing external behavior modification. He's not just talking about externals. He's not just saying, you know, be nice to each other in public. Say nice things to each other face to face, but when you go away, say whatever you want in private. No, he's saying, let this be who you really are in public and in private. Really love one another in these radical ways, this, this fully orbed sense of a transformed life. And as Paul looks to the heart and sees the way Jesus transforms you, he summarizes it there in verse 14 when he says, Above all these things, above all these characteristics and dispositions of your heart, he says in verse 14, put on love. Love. We should notice from this that Biblical love is not first an emotion to feel. Biblical love is first a command to obey. It is a command to obey before it is an emotion to feel. And that's important to know because if biblical love was just an emotion to feel, you and I are people who prefer to be selective about whom we love. And so it's easy for us to love the people we choose to love. If love, biblical love, is just an emotion to feel, then we will love the people we feel like loving. But that's not the apostolic command. Paul is talking about, to this particular church, and by virtue of his writing to Colossae, the whole church, Edgington included, Paul is talking about the kind of life transformation that loves one another without boundary or division, without preference or discrimination of any kind. And the Apostle Paul is saying, you have to learn to love like that. That is a command to obey. We have to learn to obey this command. Love is the sum of all Christian virtues. Paul is getting to the heart, and he is saying this. And before you think that that sounds like something that's just stolen and redefined by secular culture, you know, oh, just, just love each other and it's all fine. Listen, this is God's word before it was ever some co-opted notion of a culture. God has always said this to his people. Think about the second table of the law from commandments 5 through 10 are all about the ways in which we are explicitly commanded to love one another, which is exactly what Jesus summarizes as the second great commandment, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. This is a uniquely and distinctively and originally Christian notion. Love. And it is the great social ethic of 
the Christian believer and the Christian faith. And so Paul lists what this looks like as we love one another from a transformed heart. And again, he gives this list in verse 12 and 13. And you might be interested to look at each one of those individually, or you might be perhaps inclined towards one or the other of them, but what we should really say about them is that each one of these things, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, these are all things that focus on our relationships. They're all things that focus on our dispositions toward one another. And so Paul is saying these things together make a harmony of beautiful music. We could pick one individually out, but the point is is that each one of these things is the emanation of a transformed heart that loves one another from the heart. Paul is first saying these dispositions, these attitudes, these things that you put on are things that are resulting in the transformation of your heart, Christian believer. They emanate from your soul. They're not just character aspects that you can, you know, wildly put on or off. They're compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. These things come from deep within you. You can't fake these realities. They come from the heart, Paul says, first of all. But secondly especially as you look at this list, as it relates to the idea that these things are lived out, lived out in relationships, as Paul gets to the heart of the Christian, he's getting then to the heart of the church. What we're going to see in, in this middle section here is that Christianity is not an independent reality. It assumes and presupposes a community. It assumes and presupposes the church. Again, notice how these things are focused on relationships. The transformed life that we're to put on assumes a community in which these dispositions are acted out toward one another and received from one another. The, the one another's of the New Testament are such an important emphasis, and they're all over this particular passage. The one another's assume community and assume the church. We need meekness and humility and patience so that we can bear with one another and we can learn to live together and learn to love one another and be enabled to forgive each other. The point Paul is making here is that love has an object. It goes outward to someone that receives it and reciprocates as you love them and they love you and you together make a community of people that are transformed in the image of Jesus. Paul says that's, that's the point of what the gospel is doing among you. It transforms you, and as it transforms you, it transforms your neighbor, and their transformation affects yours and yours, theirs, and everybody is being transformed together in community. The point here is that Christian community isn't an option. It's essential to the Christian life. So let me meddle here for a moment. I have to admit that for all of the benefits of the live stream technology... And the ability to connect with folks at great distance or who are perhaps hindered from being away from us in some way, which has been wonderful, I grant, but I have been tempted to unplug that thing time after time. Not just because it malfunctions and frustrates the daylights out of me from time to time, though our teenagers do a fantastic job of running it, but because it potentially provides an easy way out of Christian community. Now again, I'm qualifying this by saying I am not addressing those who access the live stream by way of necessity. Geographic proximity, physical circumstances that by necessity 
I would like to address those of you who view the live stream by way of preference. Preference. If you prefer to be alone rather than with God's people, understand that what Paul is saying in this passage is that being alone as a Christian, attempting to access the reality of your Christian faith independent from other Christian believers results in deformation rather than formation. You can't access the essentials of Christian life together when you're not with other Christians. That's the key point that Paul is saying here. Formation happens in the context of community where the gospel is lived out together among other Christians. That's the point. Or think about it this way. I don't know if you've ever stood on a particular kind of beach. You know, there are sandy beaches and there are rocky beaches. And there are rocky beaches that have really ragged, rocky, really hard-edged stones. But then there are other kinds of beaches, aren't they? On lakes and rivers and oceans. Pebble beaches. You ever been on a pebble beach? How did the pebbles get that way? You understand? They started out as jaggedy, hard-edged rocks. And do you know how they get smooth edges? They collide with each other again and again and again. The force of the water comes upon them, and they're slammed into each other, and the hard edges come off. And they become rounded over and smooth. And that is exactly the picture of God's design for the church. Because, praise God, many of us have wonderfully smooth and agreeable edges that gain well for the beauty of Christian community in our life together as a church. But we can also admit that every single one of us have parts of us, don't we, that are still a bit jagged. And the hard edges need to be worn down and smoothed over. And that happens as we collide together in life, live together in proximity, follow Jesus together, bump into each other, rub up against each other, and sometimes, yes, have conflict with each other. And there are some people who think that that conflict and that struggle and that bumping into one another creates a justification to pull away from the church because they don't want to deal with that, not realizing that it is exactly God's purpose for you to do that, to collide, to have your jagged edges removed, to have your neighbor's jagged edges removed because you have some that need to be removed too. So don't go away because you see somebody else's hard edges. Stay because you have them too. They need to be rounded over as well. God calls us to live side by side, bearing with one another, to practice patience, to learn humility and meekness, to forgive each other. And as we do, the point is, not just that we become smooth, but that we become more like Jesus. The abrasive edges begin to wear off. Paul is explaining this is how the new life in Christ is worked out. Not just from within you, but also among you as you are a community of people together, the church. So he's gotten to the heart of the believer and now the heart of the church and finally we see the foundation of all of this because how do we know this is going to work? How do we know that your life is going to be transformed by following Jesus and how do we know that the community of people are going to be transformed by following Jesus together and bumping into each other with all of our jagged edges? How do we know this will work? 
Now Paul finally gets to the heart of the gospel to explain how this works. He says all of this works, this transformation that is affected deep within the heart and in the context of community is possible because it flows out of God's gracious, redemptive purposes in his gospel. He gets to the heart of the gospel here and he's going to make this point in two astonishingly beautiful ways that motivate our life, motivate the transformation of our life, and motivate our Christian community. It's born out of the heart of the gospel as Paul addresses two particular ways that God's grace is manifested. Coming out of the text, and, and, and I'm acknowledging that as we're advancing through the text here, the, the subject matter is getting deeper. So now we're going to swim into the deep end here because Paul is going to say, here are two things that are true about God's gospel that motivate the reality of your life transformation and community transformation. First of all, he says, is the mysterious and beautiful doctrine of sovereign election. And then secondly, the glory of God's grace in justification. These two things are here in the text. We want to we lift them up. Now, 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 don't let those words glaze over your attention. See what Paul says. Because he says, this is how you are motivated to new obedience in Christ. First of all, he talks about the doctrine of God's sovereign election. Look again at verse 12. And consider this first one. He says, put on then, this phrase here, as God's chosen ones. His chosen ones, holy and beloved, and so on. Do you see Paul's logic? The logic that Paul is using here is this. Here's the life that I want you to live. This is what it looks like. This is the character of it. Here is I want you to live this life. But I want you to remind you that the motivation for living this life is the fact that God has from eternity called you to live this life. In sovereign purposes, He has called you to live this life. Before God created the world, before He hung the stars, the Scriptures say, He thought of His people. Despite their inevitable sin, He purposed to set His eternal affection upon them and choose to rescue and redeem us and make us His own in Jesus Christ. Before we had done anything, before we could earn His approval or do anything by which He would be impressed with, before we did anything, God in sovereign grace chose you in Jesus. He says in verse 12, you are God's chosen ones. He purposed to be your rescuer and redeemer. Listen very carefully. When the Bible talks about this mysterious doctrine of predestination, election, sovereign grace, it doesn't say that God, as it were, looked down some eternal telescope and looked down the corridors of time and looked forward to say, oh, look at this person. Look how great they are. They're going to love me, and so I'm going to choose them because they love me. No, that's not what the Bible says. The doctrine of election is far more wonderful than that. God knows that left to ourselves, if we only had our sin nature, we would never choose Him. We would never choose to be a Christian and never choose to live for righteousness. We would never choose to put on the new clothes of righteousness in Jesus Christ. Left to ourselves, we would never come to God. And despite our sin, God says, 
I'm going to love this one. I'm going to set my holy affection upon this one. Though they would never turn to me, I will turn to them. Despite their sin and rebellion, I will choose them. You see here, when Paul calls these Christian believers holy, he doesn't mean to say to them that they already are completely holy because that's exactly what he's doing. He's encouraging them to pursue holiness, but he calls them holy because he is saying, God from all eternity has set you apart to belong to Him. That's what the word holy means. It means set apart. God from eternity has set you apart in sovereign grace. And now, Christian believer, you need to be motivated to be the person that God has from eternal sovereign grace called you to be. When He chose you, it was not some cold, arbitrary thing. He fixed His affection upon you. He fixed His love upon you. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians, in love God predestined us to adoption as children. He loved you from eternity. He loved you and He chose you. And because He loved you and He chose you, you should be motivated to be the child of God He's called you to be from all eternity. That's what Paul is saying. You know, sometimes when people speak about this, again, mysterious doctrine, but definitely a biblical doctrine, some people use it as a badge of honor and it puffs them up and they become arrogant and they say, well, you know, me, I'm chosen, you're not. And they say ridiculous things like that. If, if, if knowing these things puffs you up with pride, then the reality is that you don't understand this teaching from the Bible. Because if we really understand what Paul is saying there as God's chosen ones, it does the opposite of make us proud. It humbles us to know that there was nothing within us that inclined God to love us. We didn't impress Him. Our good deeds didn't motivate Him. All He looked upon and saw was rebellion, but He loved us anyway, which should result in our Humility. It motivates, to use Paul's language, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Loving the unlovely, in other words. Loving those who don't have the capacity or resources to make it up to you or pay you back or earn it. What it should do is melt our stony hearts to be, as Paul calls us to be, a merciful people because if you are a Christian, you are a debtor to God's sovereign mercy from all eternity. That's what you are. So he motivates this by way of this doctrine of election. And then secondly, he points us to this additional truth, the truth of our justification, or more clearly, the forgiveness of our sins. Do you see how Paul is speaking of that there, especially in verse 13? He's talking about forgiveness. And when in the Bible you talk about the Christian's forgiveness, you're talking about what the Bible calls justification. Our standing before God. The forgiveness of our sins. And Paul says, let me address this issue of forgiveness. Yes, as it relates one to another and your community. But let me address it in the context of your forgiveness before God. Paul says, you, Christian believer, have been forgiven. And because you have forgiven, forgiven you are called to forgive others. And... Yes, I've been saving this part for last because I think it's the one that we struggle with the most. Isn't it? Yes, it is. Of course it is. But it's so important. Look again at verse 13. 
He says, bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Forgiving each other. That's an active verbal participle. Forgiving. Not just forgive. Forgiving. We continually forgive as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. You know, it sounds like what we'll pray in a few moments together, isn't it? We pray it every week. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so let me be very clear about this. One of the greatest evidences that you are a person that has truly received the grace of God is that you are a person who freely extends the grace of forgiveness to other people. And the opposite is true. One of the greatest evidences that you have not received the grace of God and the gospel is that you are a person who hardline refuses to give it to somebody else. Now that's a clear word. That's a very clear word. And before we engage in any kind of, well, yeah, what about, or this circumstance, or that circumstance, listen to Paul's point. He says, think about what Christ has done for you. Think about what God has done for you in Christ. God has laid the full record of your eternal debt through sin upon Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ has swallowed the full load of the wrath of God that was due to you but fell upon Him so that you can stand forgiven of all of your sin, past, present, and future, and not only forgiven, but stand before the bar of God's justice and be declared fully righteous for all eternity. That's what God has done for you in Christ. Not only forgiven you, but declared you righteous. That is true of you if you are a Christian today. You are forgiven by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what Paul is saying here. Forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you, so you forgive. It's not a suggestion, it's a command, isn't it? Now, yes, of course, he's speaking primarily about the context of life together within the church. And when it is addressed to those within the church, reconciliation is always possible. When both parties who are crossways with each other, when both parties are in the church, reconciliation is always, always, always possible. But sometimes when we are crossways with folks who are outside the context of Christian community, Reconciliation doesn't always materialize, does it? But that doesn't mean forgiveness is not commanded to be extended. We are commanded to forgive and to pursue reconciliation as it is possible as both sides come together. But in the church, in the church, Paul is saying, forgiveness and reconciliation are always a possibility. It is impossible for you to say, I cannot be reconciled to my brother or sister in Christ. Because if God has washed you clean by sheer extravagant grace, then you need to learn to show grace and bear with one another with gospel patience. Do you remember Jesus told a parable about this in Matthew 18? A servant who owes his master a great debt and the master forgives the debt. And then the servant turns to a peer and holds over that peer a debt of minuscule amount compared to what he has just been forgiven. And you remember what Jesus says? That person does not really know me. A lack of forgiveness reveals a lack of you being reconciled to God. This is very practical Christianity. What Paul is saying here, 
is that he really does want us to be Christian believers from the heart, within the context of the community of God's people, and being fueled by the gospel because he really believes that the gospel truth is more than just words that we mouth, but it is the truth of our entire lives that transforms our heart. The doctrine of election, the doctrine of justification fuel this motivation for the Christian life. And so I simply want to ask you, Paul is saying to you, Christian believer, are you clothing yourself in the new life in Christ? Are you putting off the life that is now dead? And are you actively and daily putting on the new life that is in Jesus Christ? And the good news is, is that all of the grace that you need in order to do that is available to you in Jesus Christ. You are not lacking any resources to be able to live the fullness of the Christian life so long as you are being transformed from the inside, living in the context of Christian community, and believing the gospel. People of God, this is what the Apostle speaks to us. Let us obey from the heart for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we hear your word. And Lord, give us faith to obey your word. Not just externally, but from within and from the heart. From a transformed heart that gives glory to you the Lord Jesus, who has lived and died and risen for us and united us to you that we might walk in newness of life. Bless us all, we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.